This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, along with Inside Counsel and Law.com. Here's your host, Craig Mills. Welcome back, everyone, to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm your host, Craig Mills, an executive shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Now, over the course of this interview series, we brought you legal counsel from a variety of fields and industries, from sporting goods to computer simulation, high finance and investments, wealth management, search and staffing. Today we're going to change it up with an entirely new industry, but one that's familiar to all of us, and that is hospitality. Our guest today is Kelly Lefferts. Kelly is the Group Vice President, U.S. General Counsel, and Secretary at Bloom and Brands, Inc. If you don't know the specifics, and you should, Bloom and Brands is one of the largest casual dining companies in the world, with more than 1,400 restaurants in 49 states and 21 countries and territories. Their brands include restaurants that many of you have surely gone to, I know I have, such as Outback Steakhouse, Carabas Italian Grill, Bonefish Grill, and Fleming's Prime Steakhouse. Now, Kelly's been with Bloomin' for over 20 years now, starting as corporate counsel, then becoming vice president and assistant general counsel, and ultimately group vice president and United States General Counsel. Today, she oversees domestic legal matters and board governance for a company that sees $4 billion in annual revenue. Before heading to the corporate side, Kelly started her career at the law firms of Harder, Seacrest, and Emory, and Foley and Lardner in Florida. She's been involved in a number of changes at Bloom and across her more than two decades with that company, and I can't wait to talk to her about them all. Kelly, it is wonderful to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me here today. And I think our listeners will be particularly interested in today's podcast because it deals with a company they know, a company that we all know, uh, and yet probably don't know nearly as well as we think we do. So if it's okay, we'll dive right into it and, and, and get that information out there to the delight of the listening audience. Sure, sounds good. Well, I want to start first with your longevity, which is really extraordinary in, in my limited experience anyway. You've, you've been at Bloom and Brands for 21 years now in today's market. That's a pretty long time to be in one place, whether you're inside counsel or you're outside in, in a private firm. What's kept you with this company for so long? Well, to start off, I think just Bloom and Brands is an amazing company. So when you work for a hospitality company, a lot of that hospitality you see in the restaurants spills over into the corporate office. So the people here are just amazing outgoing, friendly people. So when you come into the office, it's a place you want to be. It makes it really fun to go into work every day. And then to add to that, our legal department is very interesting. So we have all sorts of work that comes in here. And because we have a small team, we handle everything from vendor contracts, franchising, trademarks, transactions. So there's constantly something new going on, and we never really get the chance to get bored. We we learn every single day. You, you mentioned the the constant change. You mentioned going to work every day and, and having to feel those changes as as they come up. One follow-up question, if I may. I know the hospitality industry is famous for the hours. You're, if you're running a restaurant, you're running uh, any kind of hospitality enterprise, you're working while everybody else is off on weekends and on holidays. Uh, surely that's true for the people who actually operate the restaurants, but does that also carry over into the legal department in terms of your work being basically 24-7 through holidays? I think it does to a little extent. I mean, w here we're much more corporate-oriented, so most of the people that are here are here to 9 to 5, but I think with the advent of, you know, the cell phones that everyone has, 
we do tend to be on call pretty much 24-7. And when something happens in a restaurant, they can't wait for you to respond the next day. So we do have to, when things come up, respond from time to time. But it's probably not as much as you would think. And certainly we aren't working the off hours to the extent that those people out in the field are. So I commend them for the hours they put in, the time they put in. Because we certainly we certainly don't have to do that on a regular basis. Yeah, but you probably don't get Mondays off either, so I guess it all evens out. <laughs> True, yes. Let's let's roll it back in time a little bit to the beginning of your career when you started off working at some, some very fine law firms in Florida. What ultimately led you uh, to, to move in-house? I think I always knew I wanted to go in-house. I've always been very business-oriented, and I love the business side of things. So when I was at a law firm, I felt like I was involved in very finite transactions. I never got to see things through to the ultimate conclusion or see how things played out. You kind of gave advice and then you walked away before you saw what happened with it. So I loved the idea that in-house, all of that legal advice is intertwined with the business. So you're getting to see how those decisions play out and sometimes how the business actually impacts the legal advice that you're giving. So it seems much more fun when you're ultimately involved in every detail of what's happening and not just kind of looking at the rules and saying, here's what you should do and shouldn't do. So I think that made a big impact on me. I think I knew I wanted to be more involved in the operations and how things happened and not just kind of blindly giving advice. That's interesting. It's, you know, for most of us outside counsels, kind of hired guns who get brought in to address a certain finite problem and then they tell you to turn off the clock and go away as soon as they, they can. I, I can see how it would be much more satisfying to be able to see the whole picture, you know, the why that brings the problem up and then how it all ends up in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes things play out in ways you would never expect. And being at a law firm, after you've given the advice and walked away, you don't see what that end result is. So it's interesting from the inside to see how your viewpoint changes on things once you get to see the ultimate conclusion. Speaking of changes, um, I know you've been at Bloomin for, for some time, long enough, I would expect, for you to have seen some changes in the restaurant industry. Can you tell us what, if any, changes you've seen in the legal and regulatory landscape for the kind of restaurants that Bloomin operates? There have actually been some pretty significant changes over the last 20 years in the regulations. They've gotten much more complex over time. I felt like when I started, things were much simpler. We had two attorneys. We did things like franchise compliance, alcoholic beverage regulations, slip and falls. And now it seems like there are so many things layered onto that. We now have 10 attorneys. We still deal with all those basic things. But now we also have menu labeling, GDPR, can spam. So there's a whole host of things that have been added on that we now have to deal with. And it adds kind of a complexity and a cost to the business that didn't exist 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. The regulatory landscape has grown for a lot of industries, and I'm sure yours is is quite heavily regulated in dealing with food and alcohol and and, uh, a massive employment setting as well. Um, Let me ask you about something I I found particularly interesting in your resume when, when uh, I was studying up for this interview, which, although it may sound like I didn't, I actually did. Um, in 2017, you became a founding board member of the Restaurant Law Center. Can you tell us a little bit about that, why you founded it, and what the purpose of the organization is? Certainly. That stemmed kind of out of all the regulations that we just talked about. So basically, everyone in the restaurant industry has pretty much the same issues. So this was kind of the brainchild of some of the executives at the National Restaurant Association. They brought together several of the general counsels of the big restaurant companies and kind of let us sit and talk about the issues we face and how we could help change some of those things. 
So out of that, we founded this group, which is a policy organization that interjects itself into litigation and policy making over issues that affect particularly the restaurant industry. So things like joint employer standards, tip pooling, credit card interchange fees, things like that. And any board member can suggest a case they think has broad impact on the industry, and then the board determines if they want to take it on. So it's actually been very successful in making the industry's opinions and concerns known in a way that none of our companies could do individually. So it's been a great success, and it's something that I'm really proud to have been involved in. Now, is the focus then uh, legal issues and, and coming up with a, a consensus as to the appropriate legal approach to a, a process? Is it lobbying? Is it public awareness? All of the above? None of the above? It's mostly legal issues. So, for example, if there is a case filed and we think that the outcome of the case will impact our industry specifically, even if the case doesn't involve a restaurant, we will get involved in it, file an amicus brief. We will try to you know, help them, help the council in those areas see our viewpoint so that we may not have an adverse outcome from something that really isn't even our case. I see. I can see why that would be helpful to the industry as a whole. Congratulations for having been involved in, in standing that organization up. An organization that I, I take it is, is designed to deal with some of the challenges that face your industry, and, and every industry does have its own unique challenges. As far as your industry, restaurant, hospitality, what do you think are, are, are some of the greatest challenges facing your industry today? I think one of the biggest challenges we have right now is labor. So the unemployment rate is extremely low, which is great for everybody, except when you have a company like ours that employs a lot of people. We end up in a war for talent with other restaurants, with other retailers, and sometimes it's hard to to get the people to come away. It's costly to hire them and to keep them on. And then you add to that all the regulations we were speaking of. There's kind of a patchwork of state and local governments that create policies on minimum wage, paid sick leave, predictive scheduling, other things like that. So the cost of that on top of the cost of trying to recruit the best talent makes it much harder for restaurants to keep their prices affordable and to grow their businesses. What's the industry doing to respond to that? I mean, because it sounds like, as you say, not just a, a difficult problem, but one that varies regionally. Uh, I think what you have to do is basically make your your company the employer of choice. So, I mean, we look at bonus structures, making the restaurants a fun place to work. So things that will help attract those employees, in addition to getting involved with organizations like the Restaurant Law Center, that then helps to try to create an overarching rule for some of these things. So, for example, if you have a different paid sick leave law in every county that you're involved in, it's going to be a huge administrative burden to try to comply with them all. But if there's a national policy, it's much easier to know that, okay, here's the one thing I have to comply with. So it's less costly for us to have to do things on a national basis than to do it piecemeal. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, speaking of making your workplace sort of the desired place for the people want to be, I want to turn to something that I know is, is important to you, and that is diversity in, in the workplace, diversity in the law. In early November, just not that long ago, you were part of a winning team at something called the Diversity in Law Hackathon. You joined with some other industry leaders to, to come up with ideas for how to improve diversity in the legal field. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. It was really a great experience. It was organized by a group called the Diversity Lab. 
Um, basically, what they do is they get law firm leaders and house counsel and a few law students together, and their goal is to come up with innovative ways to boost diversity and inclusion in law. So over the summer, we were assigned to a team, and we were given a topic to address. So our team was assigned implicit bias, and we had about a six-month period to come up with an idea. So our team met once a week by phone and just kind of threw things out there to see what we thought could move the needle on implicit bias in the workplace. Then it ended with, in November, we had kind of a Shark Tank-style pitch event where us and about 10 other teams pitched our ideas to a panel of judges. And it was amazing to just hear all the different ideas that people came up with because there's so many things that we as a company and law firms aren't utilizing that we could be utilizing that could make a big difference. So it was fantastic to hear some of these ideas and hopefully be able to incorporate some of them here. But ultimately, our team was chosen as the winner which was particularly exciting because the Diversity Lab then pilots the idea and they roll it out nationally to law firms and legal departments. So hopefully the idea we came up with will make a difference for some people out there, which is very rewarding. Well, you got to tell us now, what was the winning idea? <laughs> you can brag. It's so okay. the idea, well, and if I tell people about it, maybe they'll implement it before we even can get it rolled out because I think it really is a good thing. So what we came up with, we called it a um, bias buster or a micro booster. And so most law firms and legal departments already have implicit bias training, but research shows that that training wears off over time. So even though people have good intent to continue with their diversity efforts, they revert back to the way they were always thinking. So our idea is a program that integrates with your current system to kind of give you a little boost or a little nudge of that diversity training at appropriate times. So let's say you're going to interview somebody. When you go to open up their resume, there'll be a little pop-up that would come up that would explain, you know, have quotes or have statistics on why diversity is important to your business or maybe some of the goals your law firm has for diversity. So it will re-engage that training that you already had so that when you go into the interview or it can be used for other, other things too, you'll have that mindset that diversity is good and you need to think outside the box. So it's really kind of a, a re-engagement of something that firms are already doing. So we think it will be hopefully very successful in getting people to utilize it and also to make a difference in their hiring and in their promotion and you know just daily life even. That's fascinating. That's something I could see could be fairly easily implemented, particularly in some of the, the larger platforms. And and you know, now that it's out there now in this podcast, which as we know reaches every corner of the known universe, I think it's the implementation is gonna be significantly sped up. But but and, and I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. It sounds as though diversity in law has, has always been a, an important issue to you, Kelly. Why why is that? I think partly it's just a very basic thought of fairness is kind of one of my core values. So I always thought that everyone should have the same opportunities. And I was one of three girls in my family, and my parents always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I really believed it. But I don't think that everyone has that level of support and encouragement. So I feel like if I can give back to people to help them have that support to be successful or to help level the playing field for them, I want to do that. I think that is a, I think that's the first time I've ever heard it put that way. But that's a wonderful way to encapsulate the idea of diversity. It's just fundamental fairness, uh, and and so if you don't mind, I think I'll steal that and and use that in, in the future. Um, <laughs> you, you, Certainly. You, 
you say your folks told you that you know you, you could do anything and you believed it. it it looks to me as though you've you've proven that uh, pretty effectively over the last 20 some years uh, this show is about innovators and, and I think your efforts in that hackathon demonstrate uh, your commitment to innovation what else uh, if you could point to, to something else in your career just off the top of the head of which you're particularly proud uh, that led to an improvement at Bloom in order in your legal department well, one of the things that I'm most proud of here at Bloomin' is our women's leadership group. One of our female IT leaders and I founded it two years ago, and we had no budget, no help of anybody other than those we could convince to volunteer with us. And it's since grown into a wonderful resource here at our corporate office for our women leaders and for our emerging leaders. So it helps them build their skills and it provides them support for their career goals. We set up the platform so that there were several different areas that people could get involved in. So we hold networking events. We set up lean-in circles. We even provide mentor and mentee matching. And recently, we just started a new thing that we call Lunch with a Leader, where a small group has the opportunity to have lunch with one of our female VPs, and they can talk about whatever they want. So it's a very casual lunch, and they can bring up their own career goals. They can talk about you know, general topics. They can talk about what it's like here at the company or at other companies. Um, and one of the... I think most popular things we've done has been a quarterly speaker series. So we've had topics for our women executives ranging from networking to executive presence, work-life balance. And it's been amazing to me to see the people that volunteer to be our speakers. We've had CEOs from public companies, CFOs, military officials, executive coaches. It seems like it's a thing that people really want to get involved in and help with. So it's been really excited to see people be so involved in their own professional development, and it's been re rewarding to try to help people, too. Well, that sounds like a terrific opportunity you've created for the women in your company and, and something that would, I, I would expect would really help to encourage them not just to stay on in that industry, but to stay on with a company that, that creates an environment like that. I hope so. Well, Kelly, we're getting close to the end of our show, and it's time to wrap things up with uh, a section that we call In Closing. And in that, I ask you a series of relatively rapid-fire questions on hopefully relatively light, uh, non-weighty or grave topics, and then you answer as quick as you can. Are, are you up for it? Sounds good. All right. Well, hopefully this will be softballs and you'll smash them all over the center field wall, <laughs> but let, let's find out. First one is easy. What is your favorite Bloomin' Brands menu item out of all the brands? Uh, that has to be cheese fries, I think. Nice. Cheese fries. Okay. Now I'm hungry. Um, speaking of hungry, <laughs> the Bloomin' Onion is probably one of the most famous, I, I hate to use the word iconic, but famous items on the Bloomin' menu. How many of those things do you think you've eaten over the last 21 years? Oh, my. Probably way too many. And now they actually have Bloomin' Onions with cheese fries on them. So oh. that's really going to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Outback is, is might be the most most famous uh, or most heavily advertised, at least brands that you have, and that's obviously it's an Australian themed restaurant. I, I've I've never been to Australia, but since my daughter just spent an internship there, I am aware that all the dudes look like Chris Hemworth, and all the bugs and animals can kill you. But <laughs> have have you been sent to Australia for any kind of research or or just in connection with work or otherwise? I have actually been, our company does an annual trip where they send all of the managing partners, well, not all, a number of the managing partners of the year. There's probably about 10 or 20 of them. And gosh, probably 10 years ago, I won employee of the year. And as part of that, they sent me on that trip. And it was a phenomenal trip. We 
went diving at the Great Barrier Reef. We did a harbor cruise on Sydney Harbor. I mean, amazing trip. It's such a beautiful country. Actually, continent. <laughs> Having had actually friends of ours, uh, um, their parents owned a number or operated a number of, of outback restaurants, and I know they went. They were sent by the company to Australia a number of times for for superior performance. Is that something you also do for the people that actually run the restaurants? Yes, yes. That's it's there is this called Magic Partner of the Year, and if they win it, I forget how many times it is in a row. But if they win it a certain number of times in a row, they get to go on the Australia trip. That is awesome. It's good to know that the people who are actually making your bloomin' onion can actually imitate that accent if they really needed to, because they've been to the land. <laughs> um, aside from, obviously, the, the Outback, it, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but do you have a favorite brand location that you've been to, whether in, because of the city or because of the restaurant or because of just something that struck you about that location? I'd have to say our South Tampa restaurant here, which is the original Outback. It's always fun to go with people and tell them that this is where it all started. This is this is the very first Outback Steakhouse restaurant. I did not know that. But but now that I know that, I've got something to do in Tampa on a Tuesday night, and I'm going to do it. You will definitely have to try it out. Speaking, speaking of doing stuff, or, or do, what do you do for fun outside of work? Well, I have two daughters, so I don't really get to do much for myself fun outside of work. I spend most of my time driving them to activities, which I think probably most parents can relate to. And how old are they now? I have a six-year-old and a 13-year-old. Okay, so it's a little while before that second one gets the driving license. Okay, well, uh, now we know what you will be doing outside of work for the next <laughs> 12 years at least. Yes. Um, most of us in the law, and not just in the law, in, in life, had some kind of role model growing up, someone they looked up to and, and wanted to emulate. Who was yours? I'd have to say probably my dad. He was a engineering professor, and he loved not only teaching, but he loved learning. And I think he instilled that love of doing new things and learning new things on me. And I've, I've always kind of looked up to that and wanted to emulate that. Well, Kelly, we certainly all have learned a lot, as hoped, uh, about not just you, but the company that you represent so ably. Uh, and so I thank you for taking the time to come on the show with us. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And folks, this will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators Interview Series. So be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Craig Mills, an executive shareholder of Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Thanks again for listening.